I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. I'm Rachel Cook, and um, this is Tom Dilworth, who is the preeminent David Jones scholar um, and the author of a fantastic, a really fantastic new biography of him. And sitting next to him is Robin Robertson. And as you all know, Robin is a prize-winning poet and also, because they're not the same thing, a brilliant poet. And he is the person who 30 years ago commissioned Tom to write his biography. 30, 31. 31. <laughs> Um, But Robin has also agreed to punctuate our conversation with some readings from the poems. And he's just going to begin um, with a very, well, I think it's the only short poem that David Jones ever wrote. I didn't mean that sarcastically. (laughs) This is a kind of cry of anguish uh, about uh, cultural degeneration, which is always a cheery way to start an, an evening. Ah, ah, Domine Deus. I said, ah, what shall I write? I inquired up and down. He'd tricked me before with his manifold lurking places. I looked for his symbol at the door. I have looked for a long while at the textures and contours. I have run a hand over the trivial intersections. I have journeyed among the dead forms causation projects from pillar to pylon. I have tired the eyes of the mind regarding the colors and lights. I have felt for his wounds in nozzles and containers. I have wondered for the automatic devices. I have tested the inane patterns without prejudice. I have been on my guard not to condemn the unfamiliar, for it is easy to miss him at the turn of a civilization. I have watched the wheels go round in case I might see the living creatures like the appearance of lamps, in case I might see the living God projected from the machine. I have said to the perfected steel, be my sister, and for the glassy towers, I thought I felt some beginnings of his creature, but ah, 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 Domine Deus, my hands found the glazed work unrefined and the terrible crystal a stage paste. Ea, Domine Deus. Um, Tom, before we talk about David Jones himself, I wanted to ask you something which you don't 
really explain in your book, which is how you first became interested in him and what compelled you to spend so much of your professional life thinking about him and writing about him. How did you first come to him? Uh, well, that's a good question. I, I, I took a course from someone who who sometimes taught Eliot's The Wasteland, but wasn't teaching Eliot's The Wasteland. But because he sometimes did, I thought, well, I'll take this course from him anyway. It was on the, the Great War Poets, and the second semester was devoted to in parenthesis. And I remember reading it and hating it. And, and this is a typical response. Uh, it's a response of some of my best students to... to David Johnson, and then I had to reread it to write an essay, and, and the scales fell from my eyes, and I thought, my God, this is great. And then I met David Jones in 1971-72. I visited him uh, four times. Each visit lasted five and a half hours, and he spoke with such depth of mind and such feeling. He only spoke about what he cared about deeply. And he was the most affectionate straight male I'd ever met. Uh, and, and to me, I just thought, well, I really like this person. I trust his work. And then I got involved in, and I think it's the best way to read the Anathemata, for sure, is get with a group of people in the same way as there are seminars for Finnegan's Wake, in all sorts of cities you get together with 12 people and you read Finnegan's Wake and then you comment and you've got 12 minds feeding into the, into the work of literature and, and elucidating it and, and it yields to that kind of attention. Mm -hmm. um, the, the thing about David Jones is he, 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 he didn't just write and rewrite, he continually rewrote for decades. And, and he would write something and eventually get bored with it and, and improve it and deepen it. And, and, and a similar thing happens for, for a reader. If you read many, many writers after the first, I mean, Philip Larkin is delightful, immediately delightful. Uh, and the second time you read him, he's still delightful. But the fourth or fifth time you read him, you've read him. <laughs> I don't think I don't agree with that at all. Anyway, <laughs> but, 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 but with David Jones, he 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 he, he doesn't bore you after fifth or sixth reading, and and he continues to um, to yield uh, literary pleasure, and more than that, a kind of philosophical pleasure, because David Jones, unlike Edward Lear, who I'm working on now. It writes about the meaning of life. He cares about the meaning of life. I don't know about anyone who has a hard life. Maybe some of you do. You have sorrows or griefs or losses. But David Jones suffered a lot in his life. Uh, he, he had PTSD from the Great War. Uh, he had two crushing nervous breakdowns and decades of clinical depression. He cared about the meaning of life. And, and in parenthesis is ultimately about that, and the anathema is about that in a big way. Okay. Now, um, I only read David Jones in the first place because of you, Robin, because we met at a party once, and you were very, you scolded me for never having read him, and I, that's how I came to him and fell in love with him. So just tell me how 
you came to commission Tom very briefly because this, I think, was the first book you ever commissioned. Is that's, that right? That's right. I, I was doing a, I was a, given a scholarship to go do a master's in Canada, the University of Windsor, and I wasn't taught by Tom, but Tom came in to give a, a guest seminar on somebody called David Jones. Now, I had read Jones before. I'd read uh, some of the short pieces. I'd read in parentheses. But Tom came in and he played a recording of The Hunt, Jones reading The Hunt, which is one of the poems in The Sleeping Lord. Um, and it was a transfiguring experience. It was the first time I truly understand, I understood the importance of hearing the poet speak mm. their own words. Mm. And that stayed with me ever since. And it completely opened up the poem to me. And then I heard it him reading it from in parenthesis, from the anathemata, and it was uh, the beginning of a great love of Jones's work. And then you eventually came to commission, Tom. Yes, so... Um, did you know it was going to take 31 years? I didn't know that, <laughs> and, and I hope Tom didn't know that either. I, I would never have, it, I would never have said yes. <laughs> um, I graduated and then I got a job in publishing, and as soon as I arrived at a position where I could commission a book uh, that was at Second Warburg, I said, okay, I've got the very book for you. It's the biography of David Jones. Then they said, who? <laughs> Don't you worry. Uh, and um, it was commissioned immediately. And um, unlike the book, it, it, uh, the contract came through quickly. Um, and I moved publishing house at least once, and we moved the contract. And now, 31 years after that original contract, the book is finally here. So we're all older and uh, yeah. stupider now. <laughs> one, thing, one thing you left out is the role of Douglas Cleverton. Well, that's true. He, he, he facilitated this. Do you know him, the producer of Under Milkwood? Uh, I've, I was visiting him, seeing if people who knew David Jones would collaborate or cooperate in a, in a, in a biography of David Jones. And he said, oh, a week ago, someone named Robin Robertson was wondering about commissioning a biography of David Jones. And I said, I know him. Yeah, <laughs> and so we got in touch. And it, it, it was the last facilitation of a collaboration that Douglas did. The first one was the illustrations of the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner in 1929 by David Jones. So um, let's just um, nimbly hop through the childhood. Um, people think of David Jones as uh, a, a Welshman, really, but he's actually a South London boy, isn't he? He grows up in Brooklyn into this rather gloomy-sounding household. Yeah, the, the, it was an evangelical household. At home, they used to sing a hymn. I wake, I sin, I sleep, I sin, I sin in every thought. <laughs> uh, and yet the, his, he loved his parents, and they, they were lovely, lovely people. He, he had a lot of trouble with his brother who hated him. When he was three years old, or younger than that, they took him out to the hilly fields in Broccoli and take him, took him out of his pram and sat him in the wet grass, hoping he would become ill so they wouldn't have to take him out anymore. When he was five, his brother put a firecracker down his shirt. He was severely burned by it. Uh, 
it's not a surprise unless you're a single child. Children hate each other. <laughs> um, and sometimes they, they say, I, I wish you were dead. And at least nowadays they say, say things like that. And his brother actually died of TB, tuberculosis. And this had a terrible effect on David Jones. Guilt over having your half-repressed wish come true. A guilt that was magnified in the war when his, he shared his room with his brother and he shared tents and bivouacs with other brothers in arms who all got killed. Mm -hmm. So uh, PTSD, or what was called shell shock, is much worse if you had an early childhood trauma. We know that now. Mm, that's interesting. And that was true for Jones. And he has, at a very early age, uh, an unnerving talent for drawing, particularly animals. Um, astonishing. And, and he knows very early on, doesn't he, that he wants to be an artist. He persuades his parents to let him go to art school. Well, he, his mother was a gifted draftswoman, and he contracted this inclination to draw from her. And, and when he was eight, he was doing works of uh, paintings that are just, they're in the book, they're astonishing mm. for an eight-year-old. Um, later on, when he, he got to be about 12, he was doing imitative realism, and he'd lost his gift. And this happens to all children. They fall from grace, aesthetic grace. And, this, and he recovered in art school because he had a great teacher who told him to stop imitating. Mm. And, and draw and paint what you see. But he was, he, was, he was gifted. I mean, he was a prodigy. There's no question. You're quite right. Mm. So he enrolls at art school, and then there's the great interruption, which is the war. Um, now, I, if, I know Robin's going to just read something from in parenthesis now, but just before he does, I think it's... Um, very striking how how strongly he wanted to be a part of the war. I mean, he he was turned down and he kept going back again and again. He, he was determined to enlist, wasn't he? It's partly because as an art student, he didn't know how he'd earn a living. He didn't know what to do. And then the war came along and he wanted to be part of history. But it was all part of this ignorance about war, really, what, what, what war really was. I mean, they learned very quickly that they had bought more than they reckoned yes. they would get. I can't think of what else to say about the war. There's so much to say. Well, we're I mean, going to. At the end of his life, he, he told Siegfried Sassoon, I think of nothing yes. as much. I think about it all the time. I'm haunted by images of mutilated trees and mutilated human bodies. So I think Robin's going to just... Well, this is a section from early on in, in parenthesis about the uh, incredible tedium of sentry duty at night, and the deepened stillness as a calm cast over us, a potent influence over us and him, dead calm for this sargasso dank and for the creeping things. You can hear the silence of it. You can hear the rat of no man's land rut out intricacies, weasel out his patient working Scrut, 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 harrow out earthly, trowel his cunning paw, 
redeem the time of our uncharity to sap his own amphibious paradise. You can hear his carrying parties rustle our corruptions through the night weeds, contest the choicest morsels in his tiny conduits, bead-eyed feast on us by a rule of his nature at night feast on the broken of us. Those broad pinions, blue-burnished or brinded back, whose proud eyes watched the broken emblems droop and drag dust, suffer with us this metamorphosis. These too have shed their fine feathers. These too have slimed their dark, bright coats. These too have condescended to dig in. The white-tailed eagle at the battle ebb, where the sea wars against the river, the speckled kite of Malden and the crow have naturally selected to be unwinged, to go on the belly, to sap, sap, sap with festered spines, arched under the moon, furret with whiskered snouts the secret parts of us, when it's all quiet, you can hear them scrut, scrut, scrut. When it's as quiet as this is, it's so very still. Your body fits the crevice of the bay in the most comfortable fashion imaginable. It's cushy enough. The relief elbows him on the fire step. All quiet, China? Bugger old report. Kipping, mate. Christ, mate. You have them all over. Um, so, Tom, he's at, the, he's at the front for an incredibly long time, longer than any other writer. Yeah, 117 weeks. No, no, even Blondin doesn't, doesn't surpass, doesn't come close to that. I was very struck when I read your book by the fact that for all that it was uh, grim, that he... There was something about it that he loved. He wanted to be there. He, he hated leaving the trenches. Yes, he refused. When he was offered leave, he refused it. This is because he hated the army, except when they were in the trenches, because then it all made sense. And not only that... What uh, do you mean by that? When, he when hated he... drill. I see. Uh, Jones is often thought to be a, uh, an incompetent soldier because he's, he was incompetent, a knocker over of piles of rifles. Uh, a, a parade's despair. He was um, impressed that he was a, surprised that he was never penalized for making mistakes in, in parade and drill. And people think because he was bad at that that he was a bad soldier. But he, and he was upset at that imputation. He he was a cunning. You didn't survive in the trenches by being a bad soldier for that long. Um, but he volunteered whenever he could for night patrol. Even, even though it was slightly more dangerous because you could escape fatigue duty, which was so boring and awful. Um, and it was a little bit more exciting. Yeah. So, so the alternative for, for, the, for, for him of the trenches was the army in, its, in its, its essential awfulness. Whereas if you were involved in combat or, or an immediate danger, you were living something that was existentially valid the way the army isn't. It's, it's like being in school, being in the army. 
But there's also the question of the other men, is, isn't there? I mean, he sort of loves being with the other men. He, there's some yes, kind of solace yes, in it. There, there, was, there was a real sense of community, especially before the sum. After the sum, his, his fellow soldiers died so quickly that, that he, he, he lost this sense of community. And, and, and one of his best friends was blasted to bits by a trench mortar. Um, this, this sense of community mattered to him all his life. He sought it in the Eric, Eric Gill's community. Mm. He sought it with Jim Eads' family. Um, a, as a bachelor, it meant more to him than uh, it might have to a, a married person with a family. Mm. Uh, there is also one thing that happens which I took to be important later on, which is that at a certain point, he comes almost by accident on a group of men receiving Holy Communion from the Padre. And this strikes him as a very beautiful, numinous scene. It seems to get into him somehow, this, this moment. There are, two, there are two moments. The one you, you describe when he was looking for wood, he goes to a buyer and he peeks through a crack in the wood and sees and hears it, the Latin, uh, mm. the Mass, and he sees, he senses this um, intimacy of community that, that he hadn't experienced before, and this started him on the road to becoming a, a Catholic. The other, the other thing that, that is also something that he talked about if you went to visit him is his, and, and, and it has a kind of status of a recurring dream psychologically, it just meant a lot to him, is his vision of a cowherd in Ireland, a woman in a russet dress, in the, all reddened by the setting sun, going into a, a hovel, and he followed her in, opened the door, and there was an old woman by a pond tending uh, uh, ducks that were swimming in the pond inside this house. It was, it was like a, a tale of a, of a woman who can transform herself into an old hag uh, from a beautiful woman or from a, from, from a, a beautiful woman back into yeah. an old hag. Yeah. And, and these are very interesting psychologically because they meant so much to them, both of them. Yeah. Let's have another a little bit from in parenthesis. So this is... Um, this is describing going over the top uh, for an infantry assault. But sweet sister death has gone debauched today and stalks on this high ground with strumpet confidence, makes no coy veiling of her appetite, but leers from you to me with all her parts discovered. But how intolerably bright the morning is where we who are alive and remain walk lifted up carried forward by an effective word. You drop apprehensively, the sun gone out. Strange airs smite your body and muck rains straight from heaven and everlasting doors lift up for O2 Weevil. You can't see anything but sheen on drifting particles and you move forward in your private bright cloud like one assumed who is borne up by an exterior volition. You stumble on a bunch of six with Sergeant Quilter getting them out again at the proper interval. <clears throat> and when the chemical thick air dispels, you see 
briefly and with great clearness what kind of a show this is. The gentle slopes are green to remind you of South English places, only far wider and flatter spread and grooved and harrowed crisscrossed whitely, and the disturbed subsoil heaped up albescent. Across upon this undulated board of verdure, checkered bright, when you look to left and right, small drab bundled pawns severally make effort, moved in tenuous line, and if you looked behind, the next wave came slowly, as successive surfs creep in to dissipate on flat shore, and to your front stretched long laterally and receded deeply the dark wood. And now the gradient runs more flatly toward the separate scarred saplings where they make fringe for the interior thicket, and you take notice. There, between the thinning uprights at the margin, straggle tangled oak and flayed sheeny beech bole and fragile birch whose silvery queenery is draggled and ungraced and June shoots lopped and fresh stalks bled, runs the jerry trench, and corkscrew stapled tripwire to snare among the briars, and iron warp with bramble weft, with meadowsweet and lady smock for a fair camouflage. Mr. Jenkins half inclined his head to them. He walked just barely in advance of his platoon and immediately to the left of Private Ball. He makes the conventional sign and there is the deeply inward effort of spent men who would make response for him and take it at the double. He sinks on one knee and now on the other. His upper body tilts in rigid inclination this way and back. Weighted lanyard runs out to full tether, swings like a pendulum, and the clock run down. Lurched over, jerked iron saucer over tilted brow, clamped unkindly over lip and chin, nor no vent tail to this darkening, and masked face lifts to grope the air, and so disconsolate enfeebled fingering at a paltry strap. Buckle holds, holds him blind against the morning. Then stretch still where weeds pattern the chalk predella, where it rises to his wire, and Sergeant T. Quilter takes over. That death of Jenkins is a palimpsest. It's transparent to the death of Oliver and Scott Moncrief's translation in A Song of Roland. Um, if, you, if you read that, you'll see, my God, it, it, it's, it's evoked. This is the death of Roland in, in, in the modern war. The, death of, the death, death of Oliver, Roland's friend. And, and Roland, in, in parenthesis, is John Ball. But he and Jenkins can't be friends because of a class distinction and the difference between their ranks. So there's a kind of poignant possibility that's impossible. And, and, and at the end, you get 
this linkage between Jenkins and Billy Crower in, in the, the, the Lady of the Pool, uh, the, 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 Queen, the of Queen of the Woods. Billy Crower is a cockney. Cockney, cock, crow. It's like rhyming slang. And they're linked together the way uh, a middle class, upper class Jenkins and, and a lower class cockney could never be in real society in the army. So the, it sounds awful to rush on, but the war ends, we have to rush on. The war ends and um, Jones returns to London and he uh, completes his education at art school. And then a priest friend of his introduces him to Eric Gill. This is a very important event, isn't it, in his life? Well, David Jones was suffering from shell shock. Uh, his art school friends who knew him before the war and after the war, two of them, both of whom had fought in the war and been wounded in the war, one terribly, each of them thought that Jones was suffering from shell shock. So his, his psychological trouble didn't start later. Mm. And, and he, he needed a kind of rock uh, mm. to associate with, a kind of stable, strong personality. And Gill was that. And so he relied on Gill as a kind of father figure. Many of his friends said he, he was like a son to Gill. But uh, Philip Haygreen, who was worked beside Gill and, uh, and Jones in 1923, said Jones resisted Gill, resisted Gill's attempt to win Jones away from being a, an effete artist to becoming a craftsman. So psychologically, Jones relied on and was friendly and a kind of son-to-father figure with Gill. But uh, as an artist, he, he re retained his independence. For example, Gill longed for a kind of Catholic medieval um, context that would show you, tell you how to work as an artist. Jones didn't want that. He wanted freedom to be a modern painter at that point, late, later a poet. So it was a complicated relationship. Can we talk very briefly about women? Because um, Jones does um, become engaged to Petra Gill, Eric Gill's daughter. Um, I, I couldn't really tell how real the relationship was. I mean, they were clearly fond of each other, but I don't think it was a kind of grand passion necessarily for either of them. But throughout his life, Jones has uh, many, many women admirers, and he has these powerful passions on them, doesn't he? But they, it never goes any further. Well, women, women love Jones. I mean, everybody loved Jones. I don't think there's a writer who's had more friends. And this is remarkable because he suffered from agoraphobia. Yes. <laughs> he didn't go out. People came in to see him. Yeah. I asked one of these women. Uh, a group of them were called the Brides of David. <laughs> uh, and, and they, they would darn his socks and take care of him. And I said, well, what was it about him that was so attractive? And she said, he loved people. And he especially loved women. I mean, I, I was there, and I, I felt this great affection. But I was there when the daughter of an old friend of his was present, and he was... If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Twice as warm to her. And that's irresistible. If, if someone loves you, you tend to be friendly back. And that's what happened with him. At the end of his life, people were astonished that West, Westminster um, Cathedral, was the memorial service, was full. And, and these were, it, they were full of people who were friends of David Jones. So I forget the question. Well, I was just... <laughs> I was just wondering about him and women, really. And, and, uh, well, you know. the, the interesting thing is, uh, later he was diagnosed as having an eatable complex. Mm. Um, and much later after that, he would say, I can't believe it was true. I, I don't think that there's any sense to that. Um, but in 1948, when he was psychoanalyzed and, and undergoing therapy, which helped him to produce half of his visual art, and and three-quarters of his poetry, including the Anathemata, which is his great work. I just want to put in a plug for the Anathemata. Jones said it's worth 50 in parentheses. I think that may be an exaggeration, but I would say it's worth 10 or 20 in parentheses. With Petra, he, she was not his equal. And everyone else he fell in love with and was interested in romantically was already taken, was engaged to somebody else or in love with somebody else. In other words, he, he went for somebody who was safely unavailable. Yes. Um, so, so there was clearly, I, I talked to one of these women, a, a French woman, Catherine Rousseau, whom, who, who visited him, wrote a thesis on him and uh, whom, whom he was attracted <laughs> to, and she said there was a, there was a, a barrier. Mm. There, there was a sense beyond which you couldn't go. Prudence Pelham, with whom he was madly in love, and she was, she's one of the most fascinating pe people in the book. Attractive and interesting and brilliant. And, and actually probably had an editorial influence on In Parenthesis, because mm. he consulted her. She was, she was just 
fantastic woman. When he, when, when he knew her, she was having sexual affairs with uh, Victor Rothschild and, and somebody else uh, later, not at the same time. And, and her husband, her second husband, told me that if Jones had approached her sexually, she would have been sexual with him. Yes. But, but he but never he did. Never did. Mm. Mm. Uh, at, at one point, he, he, was, he, he was attracted to Dorothea Duhalpert, a fellow art student after the war. And he made his move. I subsequently learned from Diana Smith, who was in love with Tom Burns when he made his move, that he would put his arm around. around I'll just be the woman. <laughs> <laughs> he would put his arm around her and kind of touch her breast. And Dorothea said, don't you ever do that again. <laughs> and Diana Smith just stiffened. Uh, and he said, I, I never forgot those words or how, uh, how she said them. Uh, and this tied in with uh, a, a, an inhibition which I think was Oedipal and, and was influenced by his, the, the, the sibling version of Oedipal rivalry which involved his, his uh, relationship with his brother as they competed for attention with his mother. And the way they got this attention was by being ill. And his brother won that battle, mm. Uh, mm. And, and, and it really affected David Jones. And I think he, in a sibling way, he, he had an Oedipal um, repression that prevented him from having a full <laughs> sexual relationship with a woman. And according to Freud, this, this repression, if, it, if it's successful, in, in the sexual arena will shift into other areas of creative activity like painting and writing, and that's mm. what happened with him. Mm. Now, um, <coughs> we're slightly running behind schedule. <coughs> we reach the 30s, and he writes in parenthesis, and he has a terrible nervous breakdown, and he uh, is treated by a psychiatrist, and he's medicated. Um, just very briefly, just tell us a little bit about his nervous breakdown. It seems like well, it, a long it, time it, after it, the his, war. His first nervous breakdown, yes, but he'd had he had he'd had trouble before this. Uh, but this is this is this is common uh, a, 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 a postponed effect. Um, it prevented him from painting, so he wrote in parenthesis. Um, and, and, and he, after his breakdown, which was brought on by a, a huge productivity mm -hmm. as a visual artist in 1932 and the completion of, in, of, of the first draft of In Parenthesis, then he crashed. It was creativity, uh, a burst of creativity, which brought this restraining retaliation from his psyche. Mm -hmm. And he went to a neurologist who said, well, then you just must not paint. With his second breakdown in 47, he went to the same neurologist and said, well, it, it, it makes me afraid to paint, but also when I try to draw, uh, when I try to write. And the neurologist said, well, you, you should stop writing too. So he went to Bowdenhaus and got Freudian therapy, and his neurologist, his psychologist, uh, Bill Stevenson, said, you must attack this head-on by writing and painting. And you must not tear up anything without permission from me. 
and you should include women in your writing, and that's why we have the Queen of the Woods. I, I mean, uh, the, the Lady of the Pool in the in, in, in the Anathemata. And you must include women in your draw in your drawings and paintings. And he did that, and he pushed back this inhibition and produced. Um, so much uh, of his work, and I think it's the greatest psychological existential achievement of modernism. I don't know any any other case that's as impressive. And it was through through psychotherapy. Unfortunately, in 1960, all psychologists, psychiatrists rather, uh, became um, drug dispensers. And Jones was put on barbiturates, and he lost 10 years of his creative yeah. life. Yeah. It, he, was, he was only rescued from those barbiturates by a new doctor after Stevenson died. And in 1970, he was able to work on The Sleeping Lord and produced his final book of poetry. Now, um, let, let's just talk, before we talk about his reputation, let's just talk about the sort of final years. But they, it's quite a long period. In 1947, he moves to this really horrible sounding, rising, damp sort of boarding house in Harrow, uh, where he lives with a man who's had a lobotomy. And I mean, it really does sound grim. And he's sort of a hoarder. There are piles of newspapers. And it's, it's smelly and cold and damp. And he lives there for, I think, am I right, 17 years? Yeah. Um, and then he moves from there to a residential hotel, which is even worse. How do we account for this? Because poverty. But how do we account for his poverty? Because he is a um, he, as you've said, he has a tremendously replete sort of life. He's very productive. He's extremely well connected. His friends are, you know, uh, T. S. Eliot. He knows the Queen Mother. She takes him round the Tate. But it seemed to me almost like a a willed kind of poverty. It was almost like he wanted to be. Well, one Destitute. one thing is he he became so attached to his his visual art. The poetry didn't sell enough to, to make money. Mm. Uh, Robin's it, nodding. It, it, it was <laughs> difficult, and I mean, it's it's great to hear Robin read this stuff. Mm. Jones thought it wasn't good until it was read aloud well, mm. until it until it read well, mm. um, and I think Robin proves that that's true. Uh, he, 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 had, he thought of his paintings as his children. And uh, his godson, Michael Haig, stole two portfolios, and he had a drinking problem. And he, it's a good thing Michael Haig is dead. Mm. Uh, we'd be sued. Uh, and and he, he took, took the portfolios to Rex Nancavell of the Redford Gallery, and Rex... Nan Cavell sold these things, and it's got around to David Jones. He found out that these, these things that he had never released, and, and he discovered the portfolios were sold. And he knew that Michael Haig had, had stolen them, but he couldn't prosecute or pursue this because he was great friends with Michael Haig's parents, uh, who had lost a child just a few years before in a boating accident. So. Jones developed, understandably, an antipathy to art dealers. <laughs> so he wouldn't exhibit his work anymore or sell it. Last time he sold it in, in a gallery was at, at the Redfern Gallery in 1948. Uh, so from then on, 
he, he wasn't bringing in any, any new money. He was really relying on gifts from friends um, and, and meager royalties. And so he, he, he lived in a single rented room all his life after he'd moved away from home. Um, so before we go to the audience, a lot of the reviews of your book, they worried about this question of reputation. Um, they all went on about how he is a lost modernist. Why doesn't anyone know about him? Uh, you know, periodically there are little green shoots of revival, but it never quite happens for him. Yeah, in spite of praise by Stravinsky and Elliot yes, exactly. and Dylan Thomas. So, I mean, how, um, and Robin, I want to ask you this too, how do we account, well, first of all, I mean, I don't even know if it matters personally, but how do we account for it? Why isn't he taught in schools, for instance? Why don't people know him the way they know, I don't know, Wilfred Owen or someone like that? What is it? Well, the first reason is that he, the only short poem he ever wrote was the one I read at the beginning. Um, everything else was book lengths, so it couldn't be anthologized successfully. Yeah. So he, he was not making any appearance in any of the major anthologies in the 20th century, so he wasn't taught. It wasn't available. You couldn't read him. Hmm. The other thing is he's highly elusive and difficult. Yeah. In parenthesis is, is a huge challenge, and the anathemat is a greater challenge. Yeah. Um, so, so many people get frustrated and they, and they quit. They get angry. You can see this in the reviewers who, who, <clears throat> who can... Who, who said he's a rotten poet? John Kerry, if you're wondering. Yeah, so yeah, that was the most asinine. Shame on John Kerry. Uh, <laughs> claiming that Jones hated poetry. I mean, I mean, I don't know what this man was thinking. Yeah, and, and the other problem for Jones is he's explicitly Catholic, yeah. uh, and. Even if you're an atheist, the last vestige of your Protestantism to die is your antipathy to Catholicism. Uh, Vatican tyranny, that's what people think it is. Uh, that's why in the biography it's very nice to read the, 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 the Chelsea group discussions to see how open and, mm. and marvelous mm. this kind of Catholicism was. They were trying to achieve an intellectual, philosophical, theological equivalent to the Einstein's uh, universal field, field theory, where everything would make sense. Uh, Jones really thought that if something doesn't have meaning, nothing has meaning. And, and this is true of the war. It's a test case. War isn't an, 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 an anomaly, an exception to life. It's part of life, he thought, historically. And if war doesn't have meaning, or if there's no meaning in spite of war, there's no meaning to life. And the great thing about in parenthesis is that that visitation by the Queen of the Woods where she bestows garlands to acknowledge the virtues of the, the infantrymen who've died. It's the most moving passage. It's one of the most, it's, to me, it's the most moving passage in literature. But you can't just quote it. You have to know the dead infantrymen to, to feel the pathos. And, and what she's rewarding is their virtues, uh, their kindness, their patience, their love for one another. And this gives meaning to life because, of course, it's, it, it transcends physical destruction. It's, it's a transcendent in the same way that, uh, well, good, goodness is, in the same way that beauty and truth are transcendence. They open up life to a kind of level of meaning that transcends physicality. Yeah. 
I mean, I think um, we should. We've talked a lot about the poetry, but to me, he really is a fantastic artist. Another disgraceful thing in John Carey's review was that he said the paintings are like greetings cards or Mother's Day cards or something pathetic like that. But he really is a, a, a brilliant, brilliant artist and uh, absolutely his own man. He doesn't really fit in. Sometimes he looks like he's a water cyst, and sometimes he, 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 he looks, you know, he has that kind of frolicsome quality that Edward Burrow has, and you can't really place him. And no, I he's sui generis. Yes, and I think that might be one reason that people can't sort of embrace him. They don't know how to put him on the shelf. If someone said his engravings are awful, I, I, this is an insane reviewer. Yeah. His, his, this, David Jones was a master of yeah. design, and you can see this yeah. in his engravings. If you don't instantly love his engravings, you need help. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you can look at them, and within within ten seconds, you realize this is marvelous. Yeah. It's not true with the paintings. And uh, Jim Ede developed a way of of promoting David Jones. He would show the the paintings, which are um, after 1932, complicated, subtle. Difficult to see. They take a long time to see. Sometimes you have to spend time actually reading the paintings. The inscriptions aren't like that. I mean, it, the inscriptions, you look at them and you think, my God, this is fantastic. Mm. But the paintings are a challenge. And Ede would show it to, a, to, a, to a, an art critic, and often the art critic would say, I don't like these. Ede would keep the critic in conversation for half an hour with the paintings propped up. Then he'd bring him back next week. Two of the same paintings popped up, one new one. He'd keep them in conversation. By about the third or fourth week, the, the art critic would say, you know, I was wrong about these. Because he, the art critic, without intending to, had given the paintings time. And like the poetry, yeah. they reward this kind of extended attention. Absolutely. So if you have a question, uh, shove your hand up. In parenthesis was dramatised last year and I saw it at the Royal Opera House. I don't know if any of you saw it. You mean the opera? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Did you think that was a good way of making Jones work approachable? I shouldn't speak about it. Uh, I, I only read the, uh, the libretto. Um, it, it, it's simply not the poem. It's, it's given... It's given Jones and that, that poem attention, but they're different art forms, but even though they're different art forms, I would say, though you can't say this, the poem is better than the opera. Mm. You know, like the book is often better than the movie. What role do you think Jim E. played in his life? He supported him, I know, you've spoken about the, uh, the paintings, also the etchings. They were in contact for a fairly long period of time, um, I'm not sure how long, but I'd be very interested to hear you comment on that relationship. From 1927 till the end of his life, they were in touch. Jimmy was the most important person for Jones's career as a visual artist. He was the writer of, of the catalogs for the Seven and Five Society. Ede got Ben Nicholson interested in David Jones, and Nicholson brought him into the Seven and Five Society. So uh, Jones really exhibited in the most exciting society in, in London in, in the late 20s or early 30s. He was outselling Henry Moore and Ben Nicholson. 
before he had his crash. Um, Eid also provided a kind of family context and security for, for David Jones. When Eid was moving to Algiers, Jones came up from Sidmouth to sit among the packing boxes and have a last final supper with him, and he was desolate. He said, London doesn't mean anything to me anymore with Eid gone. And, 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 and who he especially loved was Helen Eid, who was a marvelous character. He thought there was something soft about Jim Eid, who in one letter wrote to Jones that God is a strawberry. <laughs> uh, but but Eid, Eid, Eid also, his daughter, told, I visited Jim Eid twice in Edinburgh. He was walking with two canes, he was 95. He was visiting in two insane asylums. He said, they think I'm the vicar. His daughter, Mary, told me, believe no more than half of what he said. <laughs> and one thing Eid says is, I interested Faber in publishing the Anathema. That was the first one. No, in parenthesis. I found out that everything Eid told me was true by, by searching through manuscripts. Um, so Eid, Eid is hugely important. Jones owes him uh, an, an immense amount. He, he owes a lot to his friends. Helen Sutherland kept, kept, kept him alive. Jim Ede kind of imitated Helen Sutherland in Kettle's Yard. That's a reproduction of uh, a Jim Ede version of Rock Hall, where Ellen, uh, Helen Sutherland arranged things beautifully and hung pictures. Could you say something about uh, David Jones's philosophy of history? Because it's always seemed to me that that is his greatest contribution uh, to uh, modern thought. I, I, I'm not sure this is the philosophy of history, but uh, it's, his, it's his theory of culture. Uh, it, it's, this is uh, important for all of you. It, it's important for me, for, for anyone I've talked to. He has an original theory of culture that will help you understand your life. Uh, and it sounds, sounds like a big claim. There are two basic psychological inclinations. One is utility, pragmatism, efficiency. The other is gratuitous, beauty, truth, goodness. Uh, the the gratuitous, gratuitousness involves birthday cakes, goodnight kisses, signs, sacraments, by which we express love and meaning. Utilitarianism means you know how to type on your computer. You can't do without utilitarianism, but to have a full human life, you have to have a gratuitous side. I experience this when I go to a dentist. He props open my mouth and tries to have a conversation with me. <laughs> do you have someone like that? Right? I experienced it interviewing people to get information about David Jones. I was torn between a desire to be friends with these people and to get information from them. <laughs> you know, uh, pragmatism versus the gratuitous side, which is your fuller humanity. I mean, efficiency is something that grasshoppers have, bees <laughs> and, and insects have. I, 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 I'm sort of downplaying it. I mean, you, you want to be able to get, get home tonight. You have to be efficient. You, you can't be a good poet unless you have a, an efficiency with language, but you, you also have to have a sense and appreciation of beauty and meaning. And I think 
uh, and what he thought was efficiency is the sole value of civilization. And there's a little bit of overlap in this, but bear with me. Light, light bulbs, plumbing, um, electricity, computers, all, all that world of efficiency that we can work. You have to be able to click your pen to get the point out. Culture is a matter of gratuitous things. Art, uh, family life, folk art, uh, and, and religion. Um, the, the world of sacrament, sign, and meaning, full meaning. If, you, if, if your life is limited to efficiency, you're, you're a robot. I think this explains almost everything. And it's, it's original insight. I don't know if that's his theory of history. I, 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 I'll let you say what you really mean. But, but I think this is really, <laughs> this theory of culture is an original contribution to thought. And you can read about it in his essay, Use and Sign, and his longer essay, Art and Sacrament. I, I think it's profoundly important. And it's his original thinking on the, on the matter. And it, it it's also informs the anathema, and, and there are glimmerings of it in, in parenthesis. So maybe we have time for one one or two more. Are you all, you're not desperate to go, are you? The reason I ke uh, came to David Jones is because I, I live, my house is five minutes walk from his grave in Brockley, and I <laughs> set out to find out about him and, and, and really, really come to love him and his poetry and his his arts. Um, one of the things about Brockley is, is it had a significant Welsh population. In fact, until recently, it had a Welsh-speaking church. No more, it's now been turned into a nursery. But um, was, you know, how significant was David Jones's Welshness? And, 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 that, and what, was he aware of that? And, and it's, it's, it's very significant. It's, 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 it's an alterity that, that gives it gives him a, a kind of special y uniqueness. But it's, it's like a Yeatsian mask. He was essentially English. Saunders Lewis said, you're an English poet. When T.S. Eliot, in a blurb, described him as a, a, a Welsh, Welshman, Jones corrected that and said, I'm a Londoner of English and Welsh descent. But his sister was a little bit interested in, in Wales. His, his brother Harold wasn't at all. And this, this began, I think, as a kind of psychological compensation to his father for his uh, warmer uh, uh, closeness to his mother, his Welsh father. But it was genuine. He, he listened to his father sing folk, Welsh songs, and he just was, was overwhelmed by this sense of the mysterious otherness. And when he well, went to Wales as a, as a child... He, he felt this this otherness, and it and, and it, it it drew him, and and made him it, it expanded his interest so that for, for for us who read his poetry, there's this sense of defamiliarization for most of us who aren't aware of ancient Welsh texts. The thing is, David Jones had no education. He he didn't go to grammar school. He went to art school. He never knew when to stop. Um, so that what you learn in school, one of the things is is how to limit your interests and your expressions. Uh, he, he didn't know. He just kept, kept pursuing this and reading. And, 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 and in his writing, you got 
these ancient Welsh references. It's not that much. It's not that off-putting. But it's something that you, you, that's defamiliarizing, that you have to experience without any conventional uh, contextualization that makes it easy. It's like listening to Stravinsky for the first time. You have to pay attention. Uh, whereas I can grade essays listening to Bach. But when, even now when Stravinsky comes on, I have to stop. Marshall McLuhan said that, that experiencing modernism in art is like being blind. You're, you're, you're in something equivalent to acoustic space where you have to pay attention because the first experience of the microphone is not when you see it, if you're blind, it's when you feel it. And then you have to stop. And I think his, his extreme allusions to ancient texts, and many of them Welsh, is, is a kind of heightening of modernism to an extreme pitch. So that a natural, all too natural response is to get angry and frustrated. But what you're really doing is experiencing something new for the first time. And, and Jones loved Wales as probably only a non-Welshman can. <laughs> yeah. if, if, you, if, if, if you're Welsh, you know what's wrong with Wales. But Jones had this love essentially for medieval Wales and, and that kind of uh, medieval Catholic world, which, which just isn't there anymore. Tiny, tiny, tiny one. <laughs> thank you for the endearment. Um, <laughs> and, uh, thank you, Thomas. I've, I've read your biography. I think it's absolutely magnificent. It's yeah. a, a superb biography, yeah. illuminating, thank moving. You. And I've got a very particular question. I read a very good review in which the reviewer did exactly what I did at the end, which is go on to Google Maps and find... That was me, thing. actually. <laughs> well, Rachel went on my... As I did. Google Maps, the Monk Dean Residential Hotel, and of course it's still there. It's still there. Uh, you don't specify which of the rooms he, he lived in and whether it's still pretty much not recognisable as, as the place he spent his last years. But uh, Yeah, that's right. I don't. I never, I never thought of that. I want to organise a flash mob. That's a, that's, a, that's a lapse. I blame my editor. <laughs> sorry to sorry to your brain, but I'm sure you can mark it with a cross. Uh, uh, no, is, is no I don't know. I don't you know, know which, which room. Sorry? So this man is... Is it? Well, it's, it's backs on the car park. It originally backed on a lovely garden with a nice old fence, and they paved paradise and put in a parking lot. <laughs> and, and, and right out his window were these, these lines of parked cars. It was just the worst thing that could happen to somebody like him. But he's such a nice man, isn't he? Yes. <laughs> he's, 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 he's a lovable person. He's a lovable pet, but that hotel is not lovable. It was a comfort inn until recently, and it has no reviews on TripAdvisor. <laughs> one, one, one of Jones's friends, Harrow uh, 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 Master's wife, said, David, how can you look with this flat wallpaper? He says, yes, it's like a Turkish brothel. <laughs> I don't know how he knew that. <laughs> well, um, we've, sort of, we've sort of run out of time. It's a great pity because um, Robin was going to read a bit of The Queen of the Woods, but um, there's just no time for that. that will ha Maybe you could do that for me privately later. <laughs> um, but um, I just want to thank, I want to thank Robin, who is a 
ravishing reader. I, he's a brilliant reader. And um, I especially want to thank Tom for speaking to us and writing such a marvellous book. And thank you must you. all thank buy it coming. because it is wonderful. So thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.